This episode is sponsored by This Naked Mind Institute, our coach certification program, where we certify the next generation of coaches to help people find freedom and experience transformational and life-giving shifts that come from science-based and compassion-led learning. These coaches are empowered with world-class trainings, industry-leading tools and resources, and the most recent scientific studies to help others learn how to create real, rich, raw, and authentic lives free from alcohol. So if you're at the point in your own personal journey where you really want to help others and pay it forward to give what you've been given and help others find freedom, joy, and ultimate happiness, then I invite you to apply for the next class of This Naked Mind Institute and join our incredibly coaching community at thisnakedmindinstitute.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to This Naked Mind Podcast, and I'm here with Raquel. Welcome. Hi, Annie Grace. It is such a pleasure to be here with you today. Oh, thanks so much for being here. This is just great. So why don't you kind of take us back to the beginning uh, in your journey with alcohol? Where did it all start for you? Oh, it started early in life for me. Um, Lord, I've been... I've been alcohol free now for uh, just coming up on 11 years. Wow. Uh, congratulations. That's just thank awesome. Thank you. It feels amazing. It, it in a way feels like a lifetime ago. And then in a way it feels like yesterday. Yeah. Um, I grew up in rural Nova Scotia, Canada, and um, I had a great childhood. It was full of wonder and adventure and, you know, my parents were very social. There was always alcohol around. They never drank by themselves, but like a person could not come into our house without my father shoving a drink in their hand and insisting they have a drink uh, because that was the hospitable thing to do. Um, but my parents, back then, my parents were not heavy drinkers. They only ever drank on social occasions. Now that did change for them as they advanced in life um and my first experience with alcohol I was maybe I'm gonna say like 13 14 years old and I had a friend over my parents would go away a lot on weekends and leave myself and my younger brother with my older sister and so we spent a lot of weekends without parents growing up and that led to um, some mischievous behavior. And so anyway, my friend and I got into my dad's liquor cabinet and sampled lots of things. It was the, my first experience with alcohol was awful. I was sick for days after that. But I do remember that, that I felt like a door had been opened for me when I, when I had that. It was like, when I went through that door, I didn't have to think about things. I didn't have to worry about things. I didn't have to care what other people thought about me and I didn't have to be perfect. So um, that I think that is what brought me back through that door. It certainly wasn't the experience because it was awful. Like as, as bad as you can imagine, that's how bad it was. And after that, um, like it was not, alcohol was not in my life a lot, but whenever I did drink, like I was never very good at managing my intake. It was either I could have a couple of drinks and then walk away, or I would have a lot of drinks and pass out somewhere inappropriate and, you know, wake up and wonder where the hell I am. Um, 
yeah, I was never very good at moderating the amount. Um, and that went on for a number of years, but I never saw it as a problem because I didn't do it very often. Everybody else around me was doing the same thing, you know, especially in rural Nova Scotia. That's what you did on the weekends. Um, so I never really saw it as me being a problem drinker in any way. And then um, when I was in my late 20s, I was 28, actually, I got pregnant with my son. And I just left alcohol behind for a long time, mainly because um, I just didn't have time for hangovers. And alcohol was often accompanied by a massive hangover. I didn't have time for it. And I also couldn't afford it. It was just a luxury that we couldn't afford. I was a solo mom. And so it was many years, well, not many, but several years before I kind of started to pick up alcohol again. And see, growing up for me, alcohol was always very social. It was not something you did alone. If you were one of those people that drank alone, you were on a dark path. That was the belief that I had in my head. And when my son was about five years old, the whole mommy wine culture, because we're talking like, you know, a number of years ago, um, that was just starting to emerge. And it was starting to become chic to come home after the end of, of a work day at home by yourself, having a glass of wine. To me, this was unheard of, but it was, it was like the cool thing to do now. So I started to do that. And it was an occasional glass of wine. And I always had that thought in my head, like, oh my God, I'm drinking alone. Oh my God, I'm drinking alone. Am I going to become one of those people? Um, it went from a glass to within three years, I was drinking a bottle a night. And three years from that, I was drinking two to three bottles a night. And my life was an absolute shit show mm. at that point. Um, it was, would have been um, in 2010. So in September of 2010, I it was a long weekend here in, here in Nova Scotia. And it was like the last long weekend of summer. So I took my son to the beach. I had woken up. It was the weekend. I woken up still drunk from the night before and feeling really, really bad. So I thought, I'll just have one glass of wine to take the edge off. And then I'll be okay. Liam and I can go to the beach later on. Well, of course, I had a number of glasses of wine. And I ended up drunk and took my son to the beach drunk continued to drink at the beach and drove home drunk with my son in the car. And when I got home, I just, I couldn't believe that I had done that. So I called his dad and I knew that, you know, the way things were for us at that point, I was passed out. Like as soon as I got home from work, I almost had two glasses of wine and I couldn't drink them fast enough to get that buzz. And then that buzz was gone within seconds because it was just followed by so much alcohol. It just flooded my system with alcohol when I'd get home from work because I had gone had not been drinking all day. The anxiety and the, you know, the feelings of dread and just, 
general ickiness had built up so much that by the time I got home, I couldn't wait to just erase all of that and everything else. So I would pass out by 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. So my son was not safe at home alone with me. And because I was a solo mom, it was just the two of us. So I called his dad and I was very fortunate that, you know, even though I was the day-to-day -day primary parent, his dad was very supportive. Both of our families were very supportive. Um, so I was fortunate to have that. And I called his dad and said, like, I told him what was going on. He had no idea. Nobody really knew what was going on um, because I, you know, I did it with the windows, the curtains drawn and the phone turned off. And so he, I asked if Liam could come and live with him for a while until I got myself sorted out. And I told him that, that his son was not safe with his mother at that point. So of course he said, yes, bring him over. So um, within a, I think the next day we packed up Liam's things and, and moved him over to his dad's. And I thought that was my low point. I thought that, like, I didn't really think it could get much worse than that, having to send, send my heart away to live with someone else. Um, yeah. But it did, get, it did get worse than that. Um, I was not ready to, I was not, I was not yet at a place where I was willing to admit that I could not control this somehow, because I was, you know, when I, when I, when I needed to, I could muster up the strength to do just about anything. And I just needed to try harder. I needed to work harder at trying to control this. So I thought, well, with, with Liam safe, I won't have to worry about that. I'll be, I'll be okay. And I can work on this. And that was, the, it was the complete opposite of that. In fact, now that the responsibility of at least trying to be there for him was gone, it just, it was no holds barred after that. So that was in September. On uh, November 24th was his 11th birthday. And I arrived to his birthday party drunk. And he asked me to leave. He was furious with me. I ruined the entire thing for him. Wow. So I left and... Um, that was on a Saturday. And by Wednesday, I was on the phone with rehab facilities, trying to find somewhere that I could go, that I would be safe because I was completely out of control. And I was terrified about what was going to happen. My mental health was dangerously bad. My physical health was dangerously bad. And I was really terrified from day to day that, you know, I would fall down the stairs and no one would find me, or I would hit my head on a dresser, or cut myself with a bottle, and bleed to death, like it was, it was really, really bad, and I would wake up all the time with, you know, one time I fractured my arm, and I don't know how I did that, I woke up with black eyes, and I don't know how that happened, with bruised jaws, and I didn't know how it happened, um, with I'd wake up with bruises and aches and pains and sprains all the time and, and not know how it happened. So it was getting pretty scary. On uh, December 2nd, 2010, I checked myself into a rehab. So I knew that I was safe for the next 28 days. 
and it was wonderful. It was a really beautiful experience for me. Um, I kind of, you know, I, I had rallied around, I gained 15 pounds in rehab because I had pretty much stopped eating what, like the drunkorexia that was, had taken full effect. Um, I was feeling healthy. I was looking healthy and I couldn't wait to drink again. Couldn't wait. In fact, I was planning it when I got out. And was there any, was there any like, yeah, like how were you reconciling those two things, those two thoughts? I wasn't. There was a war going on. I would wake up at, um, at the rehab facility. I would wake up at three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, just in terror because it was my last week and I knew what was going to happen when I came out. And I desperately did not want that to happen, but I knew it was going to. It was like the inevitable fate. I um, I left the rehab on uh, December 30th or 31st. I can't remember. And my mom came to, came to stay with me. And so that kept me kind of straight for um, a few more days. I celebrated New Year's Eve with my son. Um, and everybody was like, oh, this is great. Life is going back to normal. She's better. They fixed her. This is wonderful. We've got Raquel back. And my mom stayed with me for eight days. And during that eight days, I went to AA meetings because that's what they told me to do. And that's, you know, AA was all that was available to me at that time. There, there weren't programs like yours in existence, at least not that I was aware of. So, and it was a 12-step rehab that I'd gone to. So I went into AA, I got a sponsor. I went to two meetings a day for the next eight days. I met with my sponsor on day eight. We met for the first time and my mom had left that morning. Liam was at his father's. That's my son. I met with my sponsor. And while I was sitting in my kitchen across the table from her, I had a box of wine in the back of, in the trunk of my car that I had picked up that afternoon. And so I, I met with her and we had a great meeting. I think we, she was there for two or three hours going through the big book with me. And as soon as she left, I was, I waited five minutes just in case she forgot something and had to come back and she didn't. So I went down to the car and I blacked out for the next four days. It was just, I, it was a blur. And so that went on for 10 months. I would stop drinking. I was very active in AA. I was going to meetings every day. Um, I'd stop drinking for two or three months and then I would go on a binge and I would literally like lose days. Wake up in towns that I didn't even live. And then finally, on October 21st, 2011, I said my last, my very, very last goodbye to that toxin that was trying to steal everything that I loved. Absolutely everything. It was stripping it away. And that was, yeah, that was, that was amazing. It, it was like that day. 
I had made a decision that I hadn't made before because every other time I had made that decision, I don't want to drink anymore. I can't do this anymore. It was like, yeah, but maybe if I get cleaned up, you know, maybe if I get it out of my system, then I can bring it back slowly and I can control it. I can moderate it. I always held on to that belief. But this last time it was like, oh my God, I don't ever, like I'm literally going to die if I continue to do this because I don't want to live as a person whose life is controlled by toxins. So I, that was it. I had made the decision that there was no way I was ever going to drink again. And I was completely comfortable with that. And I didn't mind saying forever at that point, it felt comfortable to me. Um, so that was, that was the last day that I drank. So I, as I, as I said, I was involved in AA. So I completely immersed myself in AA. I went to meetings almost every night. Um, over the next few years, I was heavily, heavily involved in AA. I sponsored women. At one point, I was, I was sponsoring five women at one time. I was going into the prisons and putting on meetings in the prisons. I was chairing different committees at the executive level. I actually sat at the executive table for our district. I represented my group. Like when I say involved, I was heavy, heavy AA. In fact, some of the members used to joke and say that I was the AA poster girl. And I literally was. My entire life revolved around AA. And it worked for me for like to a point it did work. It, I, I do credit AA for saving my life, but there were some things about it that I just could not, um, I couldn't reconcile with. And that was the one, and then there were like the two of the biggest principles in AA is powerlessness and turning your will over. Well, I was, I was never powerless. I felt disempowered, but I was never powerless. Mm. I stopped drinking. That was one of the most powerful things I have ever done. So I knew I was not powerless. And why did I turn my will over to a God that gave it to me in the first place? He gave it to me. So I'm pretty sure he doesn't want it back. Well, can you explain to me the turn your wheel over concept? I've not heard that before. Oh, turn your will. It's there's, um, gosh, it's been a while. So I can't even remember the exact words, but it's turn your will over to the care of God. So oh, turn no. Sorry, your wheel. I was, hearing, yeah. I was hearing like wheel, like on a bus. No. And I was like, wait, no, the will. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He gave you your will. All right. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So I, I was pretty sure he didn't want it back. So those two things, and it was like, well, why would I turn my will over? And then like, what, is he going to direct my life? Is he going to run my life? Is he going to make my decisions for me? It just, it just didn't. I could never make that make sense, but I accepted it. It's just the way it was. And I just kind of, you know, basically sucked it up and got on with it and went about my business in AA. Now, um, during my time in AA, life was good, but it was never great. I was still searching for fulfillment in other things. 
I was still numbing out with food and shopping. And that resulted in me gaining a lot of weight and having a lot of really nice things. Um, my life was still ruled by fear and shame. Even though I, like, so I, I never craved alcohol. I never wanted, wished that I could drink again. I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything, but I also never felt free of alcohol. I always felt like, uh, because every day, meant like several times a day, I'm referring to myself as an alcoholic. So it's like, it's ever present in my life. I'm, I felt like I was dragging my past behind me, even though I had worked to let it go. You know, I went through the steps, but I still felt like, like it was coming behind me and going to meetings and talking about, you know, basically talking about how I had screwed everything up. It just never felt, it never felt true to me. Um, every time I said, from the first time that I said, hi, I'm Raquel and I'm an alcoholic, the word always kind of just got stuck in my throat. It could never come out that easily. And sometimes I had to be very conscious of saying it so that it, it did actually come out and didn't get stuck. And every time that I said it, I felt a little more defeated and a little more defeated and a little more disempowered. So it was like, if you can imagine the hammer gently tapping and that's, that's exactly how it felt to me every time I said it. Yeah. So, um, after a while, I, um, where was I going? Oh, so I'm, I'm in AA, I'm doing okay. I'm heavily involved. I'm still hiding in real life. I'm still avoiding interacting with people outside of the program because they don't understand me. I'm different from other people. I'm not normal. I'm one of those people that gets addicted to alcohol. I'm the alcoholic. I had become that person. So I was, there was so much shame around that. And I think, and did so you feel much, that, yeah, did you feel that internally as a division between you and other people? Yes. Or do you, and then of course, what you put into the relationship, you get out. So that probably boomeranged sort of back to you as well. Exactly. So yeah, sort of isolating apart from the the group of AA. Absolutely. Yeah. My family relationships. I mean, you know, I loved my family and I still interacted with my family, but I, I, I there was a long time that I, I was there, but I wasn't there. I was engaged, but I wasn't engaged. I was always kind of you know, like I felt different from everybody. I even felt different from my own family members because they were not alcoholics. I was the one who had, you know, there was no, there was no reason for it. Why I had become the alcoholic or why I was supposedly different from anyone else. And then after, um, well, actually, so during this time, I'm, eating ice cream. I'm out shopping all the time, spending money and I'm avoiding life. I'm literally spending days. So I'm going to meetings in the evenings and my days are spent knitting 
I took up knitting because I, I had to do something with my time. While I was avoiding life, I felt I had to do something and watching Netflix. So I would spend my days knitting and watching Netflix. And then I would go out in the evenings to these AA meetings. And I would be like, hey, look at me. I'm like Little Miss Recovery. Look at that. Look how well I'm doing. It's awesome. And, you know, I kind of felt like I was leading two lives. And the second life, which was the one that was hiding and avoiding and numbing out and still not, I never felt like I was moving forward in life. I was just kind of on this hamster wheel of AA meetings and, you know, nothing else, just AA meetings, doing what I'm supposed to do, not what I wanted to do, not what, in no way was I pursuing the life that I wanted for my son and I, in no way. And that hurt our relationship because that further added to the shame and the guilt that I felt because here I am, I'm not drinking anymore and I'm supposed to have this great life and everything is supposed to be wonderful and I'm still stuck. I'm like up to my waist and muck here. And I'm, I'm putting on a show like everything is great. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Life is wonderful. And it really wasn't. I was about four years in recovery. And I kind of, I don't, I know there was a turning point, but I don't really remember specifically what it was. I feel like I just kind of kept waking up thinking, this has got to change. This has got to change. And I woke up one day and I said, this is it. Like, I can't do this anymore. If this continued, this is not a sustainable way for me to live. Like I'm going to deteriorate so much if I continue to live this way. And I, you know, I craved taking risks. I craved some kind of excitement. I craved some kind of fulfillment. I craved stepping out of my comfort zone because my comfort zone had gotten really small. Like I thought my life had gotten small while I was drinking. I think that box got even smaller in my recovery. Um, I, uh, I wasn't really, I didn't really know what to do because I was scared to do anything outside of AA. So I decided that the only way to move forward was to meet myself exactly where I was, not where I thought I should be or not where I wanted to be, but where I actually was. And that was a girl who was in pain and she was a bit lost. And she she needed connection in on a real like on a, on a deep level, not just these surface connections that I had at the meetings and not from my family. It needed to be another source. So I, I got to, I didn't have many friends. Like I had acquaintances in the rooms, but I, I had left all my old friends behind. I didn't want to associate with any of them because they weren't like me. I was different. I had completely convinced myself that I was like this this unicorn, this alcoholic that, that we, we meet in, th in these rooms and we're all alike and we're nothing like the rest of the world. Um, so I got together with, I grabbed a hold of a bunch of women in recovery and I started kind of trying to start a women's group, not a recovery group, but just a, a friendship group. So we started going out hiking and we would go out along the coast. And here in Nova Scotia, we have 
the most amazing coastlines like you know the rocks the cliffs the 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 over the ocean it's just it's absolutely breathtaking and amazing and that's like that's that's my spiritual place so we started going out on a regular basis and we would go out for hours and the friendships that i developed with these women were i think on a level that i had never opened up to another woman before and when i was drinking i had a, a really close friend and she said something to me one time she said does anybody really know you like does anybody ever really know you and i i felt kind of sad and i said no they don't i'll show them parts but nobody sees the whole me and with these women i felt like i could show them my whole self i could be myself i could dare to discover who I was outside of the rooms of AA. I could dare to dream with them and talk about my dreams and, and figure out what I wanted in life. And they, I mean, my God, we would laugh until we cried and we would, sometimes we would just cry, but we were there for one another. And those friendships no, still mean more to me than they would, they could ever know. And some of those women are still in my life. So I decided I needed a little more than that. Um, I used to do meditation training. So I got back into that and I started doing um, a lot of weekend retreats, really got to know myself on those meditation cushions that expanded my self-awareness. I um, started doing yoga and in a way felt like I met my body for the first time doing yoga got connected with that in a way that I had never been. Um, I felt like I was starting to emerge from this cocoon that I had built around myself. And it was the first time that I dared to think that there was nothing wrong with me, that I was okay and that I was normal. Um, but I couldn't say that out loud for a long time. That was, you know, to think that I wasn't broken that was a conversation I could only have in my head. I couldn't say that to other people wow. because I didn't feel like people would understand because, well, of course you're broken. You're an alcoholic. How would you not be broken? You're not okay. You're not normal. And then um, I noticed this feeling inside of me starting. And it's, at first it started like a little flutter and then it grew a little more intense. And when I would sit in the quiet and recognize that feeling, it would like my whole heart would light up and it would, I was like, joy would be just pulsating out of me. And it was this incredible feeling that um, it was almost overwhelming in a wonderful way that something amazing was coming for me, that something truly wonderful was waiting for me was on its way and of course I met a man and I thought it was him and it wasn't and that man actually asked me to marry him and I realized I don't ever want to be married I wanted someone to want to marry me but I don't really ever want to be married so and then I also realized that um I didn't even really want to spend the rest of my life with him so I left that relationship 
and set back on the path to discover what it was that was coming my way. And then I found, I realized that it was me, that I was the very thing that I had been searching for my whole life. You know, when they say finding yourself or she's searching or well, I was always looking for me and I didn't know. Anyway, I discovered myself. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard to describe, but there's like a, it's, it's filled with excitement and anticipation of what's coming next. And like this level of inner confidence and of just being enough, just really being enough, exactly the way I am. So a few years back, a friend of mine um, told me about a book called This Naked Mind. So I was curious because the title is what grabbed me, Control Alcohol. So of course I went into this book with skepticism about really like, how's she gonna sell this? How's she gonna control alcohol? So that skepticism quickly turned, I started reading it, uh, quickly turned to curiosity. I think I started reading it to prove you wrong. Like, no, no, they can't control alcohol. That's I, for, for, <laughs> I, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I, uh, the, the curiosity, the skepticism turned to curiosity. Then it was like enlightenment. Because I felt like, oh my gosh, these are my people. These are people that think the way that I do. Because not once on my journey in the what seven years prior to that had anyone ever put any blame on the alcohol it was always the alcoholic their character defects what's wrong with them like you know alcohol's fine it's just certain people can't drink it and that is completely untrue like of course people become addicted to it it's a highly addictive substance and i just i couldn't believe what i was reading and the science behind it that you that you laid out in that book was there were I was like having light bulb moments here and there like it was amazing to me my mind was literally blown and so after reading that book that's when I during this time I had been stepping back from AA because I didn't feel that it was the healthiest place for me to be anymore and I, but I didn't really have, I was kind of like, I felt like a fish out of water, you know, like, because they drill into your head, do the work and go to meetings, mm -hmm. work the program and go to meetings. It works if you work it, which implies if you don't work hard enough, or sorry, it implies if it doesn't work, you didn't work hard enough. So I was always working, 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 working that program and working at those meetings to to not go back out because that was threat was always looming over your head. You saw it day after day, people coming and going. And <clears throat> when I discovered uh, this naked mind, that's when I felt like my training wheels fell off. Mm. I was ready to put on my big girl pants and get out there in the world and do the same thing 
that you've done for me, for other women. And that's to help them discover just how powerful they can be, help them discover the magic in life again. Oh, I love that. It's just amazing. Um, Wow. Gosh, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I, I can't help, but as you were talking about the, if it were, you work, it works if you work it and, you know, and it just brings brought up to me in my mind, the whole, um, the drink responsibly that's on the alcohol bottles. Yes. It's, it's a similar kind of ethos. Like it's a similar worldview of if you can't drink responsibly, something's wrong with you. If this program doesn't work for you, something's wrong with you. Um, I did some kind of digging into like the percentage of people that AA does work for. And, uh, you know, because you never want to throw out something that is working for someone or ever, or ever talk badly about it. I think everything has its place. And, you know, in some regards, like, thank goodness that AA even came about because back in 1929, which was Uh almost hundred years ago now, like when it was founded, you know, there was nothing. It was basically, you were just almost left to die. And, um, and so I think that, you know, we can be both really grateful and understand that like there is an iteration and evolution that can, can come out of it, you know, and come forth from, uh, from, you know, transcending what we've learned, but also integrating the, the parts that are, are really good, which I think is, you know, it's the aspect of community, maybe not necessarily like insular isolating community, but community nonetheless. And, um, and I think that's really, really interesting, but it is almost as if with that, it works if you work it. If it doesn't work, there's only one logical conclusion and that that's you're broken. And it's such a helpless message at its core, right? Because, um, and it's, it's kind of genius too, because it's like, you can never blame the program. Like you can never kind of like it's, it's eliminated any other possibility of, well, maybe there's something else to see or know here, you know? And I think ideas like that, that aren't strong enough to question themselves or to admit fault. Um, I think they really can keep us stuck. It's, it's interesting just earlier today, some, you know, a reader emailed me and she's like, and the opioid crisis has obviously been just tragic since 2015 when I wrote the book. And there's a statistic in the book that says 88,000 alcohol deaths per year, which is more than twice the amount of all prescription and illegal drugs combined, which was 22 and 24,000 respectively. And now we've just crossed 100,000 deaths a year in the opioid crisis that's happening in our country. And, um, And I think that like, we have to be so open like things are changing. We humans are changing. How we approach things are changing. Statistics are changing. You know, it doesn't make the book as it was wrong. Um, but also if it stays there, like if it doesn't iterate or adopt, adapt and, you know, have some sort of updates. Um, and I think it's really tough when you create this. I think it's, it's both beautiful to create this huge democratic sort of structure that what I understand AA to be, 
it's also really tough because like it, it makes change hard, you know? So it's, um, I think there's a lot of people very similar to you. I've heard from dozens and dozens of them who feel like, yes, this saved my life and I want to iterate it, but I can't find a place to do that within the existing structure. So yeah. I almost have to leave it behind. And, and that's tragic too, because of how, um, how it's just, you know, like it's, it's just tragic. I mean, what if we could, cause there's so many people at top of mind. It's what's in movies. People know about it. If you, if you feel like you need help, that's where you're going to go. Very few people comparatively know about this naked mind, you know, very few people know about other alternatives. Even few people know about things like smart rec recovery or, um, other alternatives because it's just so pervasive globally, but, but there's no, there's no in, in the mechanism as it's been built, there's no, there was never built in a way to question, change, iterate, revolutionize, you know, the system because of things like it works if you work it, that like it, that like stamps down on any ability to admit, okay, this might need a refresh or what could we do to keep both the great and include the new, right? Like yeah. to, to say, no, it's not an allergy anymore, but it's also not that you're broken, you know, or anyway, it's just, it, it's just fascinating. It, it, what you said just triggered a whole, a whole stream of thinking for me, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, the very way the the structure of the entire AA um, organization is set up, it's set up to stay the same, to remain yeah. the same, like to change a couple of words in one of their pamphlets has to go through, like in a way it's a beautiful system, but in a way it's a, it's a system designed to never change yeah. because that to change those couple of words in a pamphlet that has to go. It starts at the group level, then goes to a district then. And I don't even know all the names, but we're going to say it goes through 20 levels of voting and discussion before it ever goes to a committee to be changed. And then that committee has to, and, and I might have this wrong because I may have kind of forgotten one of the steps, but if I'm not mistaken, there is a conference every year or every two years or every four years or something where these things get discussed. They then get discussed at that conference. And if a decision is made to change it, then the process of changing it starts. So to change a couple of words on a pamphlet could take years. Mm -hmm. If it even, if it even got that far, right. it could be stamped out at any, anywhere along the process. So big change, I don't think the way the system is now, I don't think you'd ever see that. And that's unfortunate because in a lot of ways, I feel like the way that their system is set up that has protected them from any kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's, it's protected them, the integrity of their program for almost a hundred years. Right, but it's I think amazing. That, yeah, it is. It it really is. AA is a household name. It it just rolls off everybody's tongue. But I think that that very structure could possibly be their downfall as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's so true. Like it, 
rigidity can keep something standing for a long time, but then rigidity, when the time for it to change, it will break under change and there won't be an adaptation or a like yeah. you need flexibility to be able to change and and remain. Um, so yeah, it is it is kind of tragic in a way and it's kind of beautiful in a way and it's it's just all of the all of the things kind of at once. It's I was saying earlier to someone as we're actually looking at the the Snake and Mind Institute manual and and what refreshes and updates and changes that I need to create. What have I learned since I wrote that in 2019? And and one of the things that's such a theme for me is is the paradoxes that I'm starting to see. Like this is true and in certain instances, this is all true. And almost just being able to bring that that paradox into, um, into the things we do because like things just aren't, they aren't black and white. Like there, there's no straight line in nature. You know, there's, it's not, things are so layered and complex. And I think the first base level of understanding is, is kind of like, okay, we need these rules and we need rigidity because then we can at least grasp concepts. But then we have to understand that, well, those rules only existed to create the base layer of understanding. And then we need to understand like the next layer of dynamics that is happening. And so one of the things that keeps striking me in this rewrite is, wow, there are really incredible paradoxes about, I believe that, you know, grace first, no matter what, 100% self-compassion, like that is the way through. And I think that there is a time when, you know, you can probably take that to an extreme of using it as an excuse and actually never taking the action that's necessary um, or enduring the discomfort that's necessary to actually change, you know, like both of those things can exist at the same time. And how do we navigate through that? What are the principles by which we think through those things in our, our own unique situations so that we can, you know, so that we can be better for the understanding that both and are true, which is, it's really fascinating. So anyway, tangent again, but Raquel, tell me, uh, what made you decide to become a, a Naked Mind Institute certified coach? Well, I, one, I had no idea that such a thing even existed. And the same friend that told me about the book also told me about a mutual acquaintance of ours, um, who was a this naked mind certified coach and when she told me i'm like what (laughs) this is this is a thing so i immediately went on the computer and saw that you were you were not taking applications but you were um you had a, a wait list so i joined the wait list and i don't know maybe like a couple of months later i got an email saying that applications were opening up i immediately applied got on a call with Scott and here I am today. Amazing. (laughs) And, um, and let's, let's dovetail a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about some of the exciting things that, that you're up to both in your life and in your, you know, coaching practice. And then we'll finish off with two kind of final questions, but can you talk to me a little bit about what we were talking about before we pressed record? Yeah. So, um, coaching and helping women discover their power and their magic is one of my biggest passions in life. And my other is to travel. 
And I've never really created the opportunity to do a lot of that. I've taken a few trips here and there, but nothing, nothing major. And I've always used the excuse that I, oh, it's just not the right time. I don't have someone to go with. And then, you know, then there was a long period where I was raising my sweet little boy and my sweet little boy is now 22 and he can take care of himself. So this, I, and for the last couple of years, I've been saying, you know, like in five or 10 years, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go somewhere and live somewhere else. And then I was um, having a conversation with a friend of mine over coffee. And I was telling him about my plans. And, and I, as I was sitting there, I, I'm like, that feels too safe. It feels too safe. It feels too far out. And, and I can put it off and keep saying five or 10 years for the next 20 years until it's too late. So I said, part of me wants to go now. And as soon as I allowed those words to come out of my mouth, it was, it was done. I started making plans. I started... I told my employer like the next day that I was leaving and I, and I didn't know when, but it was coming soonish. And so I thought, okay, I'll give myself 18 months that way. You know, I can have, I can be in, in a financial position to go. I can have all my affairs in order, but, and then after about a month of that, that felt too safe. So I said, nope, I'm leaving on March 1st. Amazing. So I'm in the process now of selling everything that I own. I'm moving into a suitcase and I'm just going to go and travel and start my nomadic life. And the two, the coaching and the traveling marry so well, well together because I can coach from anywhere. All I need I is my laptop that. and my internet connection and I'm good to go. That's so great. That's so great. And just out of curiosity, like, what is it bringing up for you to be downsizing into a suitcase? It is the most empowering thing I've ever done. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. It's like, you're, everything is yours. Like, you're just like, I, under no constraints, like I've just, you know, I just get to choose what do I really want? That's, I love that so much. Wow. How incredible. What an incredible example. And I, I think that one of the things we talk about in the certification is um, about being a deep well. And that really means being somebody who is learning, growing, internalizing, you know, all of these things so that they are able to, to come forward when we create space for another human in whatever way that that's, that's kind of supposed to happen. And I can't help but imagine that this experience is just going to create such a depth in you as a, as a coach, as you go through watching yourself, you know, do all of these sorts of things. It's just absolutely amazing. So, yeah. so cool. Let me just ask you the last two questions, uh, which is, first of all, where can people find you? I, I realize physically it's going to be all over the place, but <laughs> online where can people find you <laughs> they can always find me at raquelreed.com all right great that's amazing and then um if you were going to go back in time and uh it's interesting usually i ask this question about back in time before you found freedom from alcohol um but i'd like to i'd like to reframe it actually i'd like to ask if you were going to go back in time to um, when you felt isolated and when you felt 
powerless. And when you felt like there was one alternative, which was drinking until I basically die, or there's this alternative of living in this world that is making me feel further and further away from who I am authentically, um, and tell her how life is like today, what would you say? Oh, she has no idea what mm. she's capable of. She has no idea what's waiting for her. God, I would just hold her so tight and love her so, so hard and tell her that she's just, she's great. She's okay. She's enough. Exactly the way she is. And that she was capable of doing everything she dreamt of and so much more. Wow, it's so beautiful. So beautiful. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with me, Raquel. We've really uh, covered the gamut and I just really appreciate the conversation. It's just amazing. Thank you for having me, Annie. This was, this was a privilege for sure. Are you realizing that there's something more? That you're so excited about this change in your life, maybe you've put down the bottle for good, and you just wanna pay it forward. You wanna help others in their moments of need move through that discomfort. You wonder what it feels like to celebrate you with your own journey by paying it forward and giving back what you've been given. Now's the time to find out. Enrollment is now open for our coaching certification program with this Naked Mind Institute. In just six months, you can receive the training, the resources, and tools you need to become our next certified coach so that you can start your entrepreneurial journey or grow your already existing business while helping thousands of others to find freedom, joy, and happiness. If you're hearing that little voice calling that says you're meant for so much more in this journey, then I invite you to leave your comfort zone behind and learn more about becoming a certified coach at thisnakedmindinstitute.com. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.